Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from London, I'm Isa Suarez in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move and here's your need to know. China tensions a day after U.S. security deal China asked to join a regional trade pact. Ethiopia sanctions President Biden signs a new order after CNN reporting on atrocities in the Tigray region. And the Italian job workers face tough new rules on vaccines as well as COVID tests. It is Friday, so let's make a move. A warm welcome to everyone. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Friday. And let's begin with an update, as we always do here on the show, on the global markets. Futures are pointing to a mostly flat open on Wall Street after a pullback for the Dow and the S&P in the previous sessions. You can see red hours right across the board on those futures with roughly about 29 minutes or so until the bell opens. Uh, Trading begins on Wall Street. That said, all the major averages remain on track to finish the week with modest gains. So you see the Dow up fractionally, same picture with the S&P 500 and NASDAQ. Now, major tests, market tests, of course, are set to come soon. The Federal Reserve updates investors next week on when it might ease stimulus. And Congress remains far apart on a deal to raise the debt ceiling. Now, if we have a look at European stocks and how they're faring this Friday, well, there you go. Green arrows right across the board. UK stocks gaining there uh, just two-tenths of percent, despite news, in fact, that retail sales there took an unexpected drop last month. Well, a positive close if we have a look uh, to Asia. How are the trading week has been in Asia? Hong Kong rebounded off 10-month lows, rising more, you can see there, than 1%. And for the week, however, the Hang Seng fell almost 5%. It is now down 8% so far, as you can look at that graphic this year. Well, in Hong Kong today, shares of deeply indebted property developer Evergrande, which we have been covering here every single day on the show this week, fell for a fifth straight session, hitting their lowest levels in 10 years, 3.4% there. Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan now say Evergrande's troubles could trigger a broader crisis in the Chinese real estate sector. Meantime, the editor of the Beijing-backed Global Times newspaper says Evergrande is not too big to fail. While China today injected billions into the financial system to help ease growing concerns about those strains in the credit markets. We'll keep on top of the story for you. Now let's get straight to our main drivers. Chinese President Xi Jinping saying external forces should never be allowed to interfere in a country's internal affairs. He addressed the summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which was also attended remotely, as you can see there, by the Russian president and India's prime minister. Mr. Xi's comments came after the United States unveiled a new security alliance to help Australia get nuclear-powered submarines. Ivan Watson is live in Hong Kong with us, and he's monitoring the story. So, Ivan, look, it's clear the Chinese are not happy at all by this new alliance. 
how have they responded? And critically, I mean, I'm interested to know how it's being covered uh, by the media in China. Well, it's been slammed in the media. Uh, as for Xi Jinping, in, in his speeches to the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization, he did not directly address uh, the new nuclear-powered sub submarine deal uh, between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia. But he did have some words that were clearly critical of the U.S. with the ongoing tensions. He, he called on the member states to reject condescending lecturing, to never allow any external interference in the domestic affairs of countries in their region. Uh, and uh, he, he called out so-called uh, the use of the so-called rules to undermine the international order, which is kind of turning around uh, a line that Washington repeats that it's trying to uh, maintain a rules-based order. Uh, the other criticism has come from a spokesperson for the foreign ministry and from China's ambassador to the International Atomic Energy uh, Agency, the IAEA, uh, and he was specifically calling on the Board of Governors to denounce uh, the tripartite uh, agreement, arguing that this is a violation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So that's another angle that Beijing is pursuing, uh, another case that it's trying to make. When it comes to the media, well, the Global Times is China's kind of very nationalistic tabloid newspaper, and it's had mm. some choice words. It's called Australia a running dog and saying that if it provokes China the, to expect no mercy, uh, and it, it is accusing the U.S. of, of helping foment a submarine fever. Uh, and that's another line that Beijing has been repeating that this will drive an arms race in the region. Mm. And interestingly, the Indonesian foreign ministry picked up on that and also shared it in a statement warning about the risks of an arms race. Isa? Uh, and as this is all unfolding, of course, Ivan, you know, you've got China applying to join the Asia Pacific Trade Pact, of which, of course, Australia is a member. Do you know or what are you hearing in terms of whether this is a response to the submarine deal? The Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson denied that. He was asked about that at his, at his daily briefing. Uh, he did have an interesting uh, response to that. He said, uh, you know, there, there are these two different things. The, the nuclear-powered submarine agreement between Britain, the U.S., and Australia, and that uh, is, quote, pr promoting war and destruction, whereas China is promoting economic cooperation and the integration of economic regions with uh, its bid to join the CPTPP. Uh, a lot of acronyms there. Uh, there is some reluctance right out of the gates from the Japanese government about welcoming China into the organization. Some quotes to that effect coming from senior Japanese officials. Uh, but some analysts have pointed out a weakness on the part of Washington here, that it is promoting military cooperation. And next week, we'll see the leaders of the so-called Quad uh, Alliance, that's India, Japan, Australia, and the U.S. getting together to talk about their cooperation, which has been carried out in the forms of joint naval exercises, for example. This new uh, announcement about uh, building nuclear-powered submarines for Australia, whereas China has been pushing forward uh, on economic integration, not only its enormous belt 
Belt and Road investments, but also, as you mentioned, this regional uh, comprehensive economic partnership that it signed on to last year. And now it's pushed to join what was known as the TPP, which the U.S. pulled out of under the Trump administration, which had been seen as an attempt to counterbalance China's enormous economic power here in Asia. Isa. Such an important point there from Ivan Watson. Thanks very much, Ivan, there. Now, the trilateral alliance that Ivan was talking about also leaving France pretty furious as Australia now scraps a multi-billion dollar deal to buy French submarines. France is cancelling a reception for U.S. dignitaries that would have been held in Washington today and scaling down another Franco-American military commemoration. Melissa Bell is live in Paris with the latest look. The French, I hear, Melissa, are seething. And they're clearly, as we just outlined, showing this today in Washington. Uh, that's right. I mean, they've made uh, that quite plain. The French press also up in arms about what's happened. But beyond that question of the many billions of dollars that this will have cost France, there is perhaps a much more important question of how this is being received in Brussels. The news came, you'll remember, Issa, just several hours after Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, had made that State of the Union address, which was all about European unity, all about trying to make plain that Europe was ready to be a major actor on the global stage. What a blow it took only a few hours later when Europe learned on live TV of what was actually going on. Now, what's happened since are those growing calls that had begun several months, a couple of years ago already, that Europe needed greater strategic independence. And I think what you're likely to see over the coming weeks is Europe really try and uh, go even further uh, in that. It, it's taken a different position to the United States towards China from the start, one of cooperation where it can, uh, containment where it feels it must. And I think you're likely to see as a result of this a lot more rapprochement with Beijing than perhaps Europeans had imagined just a short while ago, Isa. Yeah, because despite the politics and the influence, it's also a huge uh, economic loss for France. Melissa Bell there for us. Thanks very much, Melissa. Well, the Italian government is making it mandatory for all workers, whether public or private sector, to obtain a so-called COVID green pass. From October 15th, employees will have to prove either they've been vaccinated, they've tested negative or have recovered from a COVID infection. It is the first country in Europe to adopt such a strict rule. CNN's Ben Weedham in Rome with all the details. And Ben, these very much being seen as some of the toughest measures in all of Europe. How is it being received? It's been these measures, despite their being tough, uh, are being received fairly positively. Uh, the only sort of voice of discontent within the government coalition is the so-called Lega, the League, uh, a right-wing party that in the past has opposed uh, restrictions like these. But what they've discovered is that despite their position, uh, the public is by and large in favor of imposing ever more restrictive measures to compel as many people as possible to get vaccinated. Now, the government has a goal of vaccinating 80 percent of the eligible population by the end of this month. By now, at this time, 75 percent of the population over the age of 12 has received at least one vaccine. So they seem on course to achieve that. Now, why are people so accepting of these harsh measures? Keep in mind uh, that 130,000, more than 130,000 Italians have died from coronavirus. Italy was one of the hardest hit countries in the early phases of the pandemic. People want to see life get 
back to normal. And although you do have those who subscribe to magical thinking that perhaps this virus isn't real or perhaps the sort of solutions that they are entertaining in some quarters in the United States of horse deworming or gargling with iodine, that sort of thing hasn't caught on here because people basically understand if this pandemic is not beaten by the use of vaccinations, uh, it will go on in perpetuity at this point. Isa? And if you fail to abide by these rules, what is the, is there a fine? What's the repercussion for, for if you're an employee? There are a variety of uh, repercussions for those who do not comply. Uh, for workers who show up to work without a green pass, they will be suspended uh, from their jobs without pay. Others who refuse to uh, get a green pass and still go to work will be fined. And employers who don't check that people are properly vaccinated will be fined as well. So there's a variety of incentives, penalties, uh, prices to pay uh, if you do not apply with this uh, decree which will go into effect on the 15th of October. Isa? Ben Wiedemann for us in Rome. Thanks very much, Ben. Great to see you. And still to come right here on First Move, as regulators debate booster shots for Americans, the man leading Africa's vaccine drive says extra shots for the rich means fewer for the poor. Then Broadway comes roaring back. What it takes to get Broadway's bright lights back on after 18 months of shutdown. Those two stories after a very short break. You are watching CNN. Welcome back, everyone. Let me bring you up to date with the stories making headlines right around the world. The U.S. president has signed an executive order authorizing new sanctions against participants in the Ethiopian conflict. Reports of atrocities have continued to emerge from the Tigray region of Ethiopia. CNN has uncovered evidence of mass detention, sexual violence, as well as killings. Nemo Abadje joins me now. Joins me now. And Nemo, you know, when your exclusive report came out uh, last week, I remember talking to you, and the first thing I said to you is, why isn't the international community doing more to stop these atrocities? Well, now that's coming, the stick is out. What can we expect for, to hear from the United States? Well, it's important to point out that this isn't actually implementing new sanctions. What it's done is it's broadened the scope of the sanctions, and for the first time, issued an ultimatum. Officials tell us that this needs to be within weeks. That negotiation of a ceasefire, the lifting and uh, allowing by the, Ethiopian, by the Ethiopian government and its allies of much needed humanitarian aid into the region, um, which has been very difficult to do within the last six weeks, pulling more and more families into famine conditions. All of that now is what the US government is saying it's watching. It, of course, also telegraphs a really important message, which is through this executive order, the Biden administration is saying that the ethnic-based violence, as they call it, the rape, the, the gender-based violence, it constitutes what the US considers to be a national 
uh, emergency, i.e. it is not in the interests of the United States, whether morally or from a security perspective, to allow this to continue. Um, given what we were discussing when we spoke after our last reporting, I think it's important to, to make clear that we spoke to congressional contacts and they told us that it was our reporting really that triggered this because uh, our um, communication of the situation, reality on the ground, gave them a renewed sense of urgency and they ratcheted the pressure on the Biden administration. This really has come from U.S. lawmakers. I just want to remind our viewers of what we uncovered and it is very difficult to watch. The images are graphic, but they're really important because what you're seeing here is the evidence of a methodical campaign of torture, detention and execution. Those bodies that we found had been executed after um, being forced to suffer the most horrifying torture. And that is evidence of a, of a methodology which points towards um, all the hallmarks of genocide. And it is this that is pushing the US administration into um, these broader threats and, and broader sanctions at their disposal, Issa. Uh, briefly, Nema, what has been the reaction to this ultimatum from, if there's been any, from the Ethiopian and from the Australian government? Well, it's clear that this is what they were worried about because after our reporting came out, we were subjected to an extraordinary smear campaign online, um, really horrific uh, threats and name calling to anyone whose name appeared on these bylines. And, and much of it was from people who had official associations with the governments of Ethiopia and Eritrea. So it's clear this is where they were scared of ending up. We're, we are reaching out to the Ethiopian authorities to get comment from them. We're waiting to hear back. But, but what we've seen from their supporters in the diaspora and online, that they are very worried about the impact that you, the US coming out ahead of everyone else is going to have on the broader international response to this, Issa. And if you haven't seen Nema's exclusive reporting, I encourage you to do so. Nema Baga there. Thanks very much, Nema. Good to see you. Now, CNN has obtained satellite images that show North Korea is expanding a uranium enrichment facility. According to analysts, this suggests Pyongyang is planning to boost production of weapons-grade nuclear material. And it comes weeks after a report by the International Atomic Energy Agency found the country had restarted a nuclear reactor at the same site. Now, let me bring you another check of the markets, if we can bring them up. It's still looking like a a flat to actually a pretty a lower open, but kind of range, but Dow, Dow, Dow futures is really flat um, for U.S. stocks and options expiration Friday for Wall Street, which means trading volumes are likely to be much higher than normal. Price swings could also be more intense. Meantime, it's been another bumper week for U.S. IPOs with names like Dutch Brothers Coffee and Roger Federer's backed on sneakers going public on the NYSE. The number of firms making their Wall Street debuts have already surpassed 2020 levels. And then NYSE is expecting a strong finish to the year. With more well-known names set to hit the market, including Wobby Parker Eyewear, which is hoping to launch a direct listing on September 29th. Firms are increasingly taking advantage of popular new paths to going public, including direct listings and CPAC. SPACs. John, John uh, Tuttle joins me now. He's the vice chairman or, uh, and chief commercial officer at the NYSE. John, great to have you on the show. Look, 2021 is proving, as we just outlined, to be a pretty stellar year for you. Uh, what's driving this IPO activity? 
Well, great to be with you. And you're right. 2020 was a record year for the New York Stock Exchange. We've already surpassed those records in 2021. It's been a great group of companies that have come to market from across geography, industry, size. Uh, and we're, you know, and the market has been giving them a very warm reception. You're right. We are seeing an exciting pipeline of companies looking to come to market. Markets are, 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 are warm to these companies. So interest rates are low and relatively stable. Companies had performing well in the weeks, months, and quarters post their listings. So after a couple weeks of quiet at the tail end of summer, now that we're past Labor Day, we have an exciting pipeline of companies ready to come to market. And John, give our viewers a, an idea of what kind of companies you're seeing going public. I mean, is there a trend that you are seeing this year? Absolutely. So there are three sectors I would really identify. The first one is tech. We have a strong pipeline of technology companies looking to come to market. Over the past 12 months at the New York Stock Exchange, we've, we've welcomed the largest software IPO in history, the largest cybersecurity IPO in history, and more exciting companies to come. Another one is healthcare. Today, we have Ginkgo Bioworks listing on the New York Stock Exchange. It's the largest biotech listing of the year. And also consumer names, too. Now that we're hopefully in the, the final stages of the pandemic, a lot of people are excited to get back out and enjoy life. So we had companies like Weber Grills, Traeger Grills, and more exciting names to come list on the New York Stock Exchange. And as we look forward, it's going to continue to be those sectors. But we're also seeing a lot of companies from outside the United States, Southeast Asia, Europe, South America looking to tap into the New York markets. And this week, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I've been told you we have also been seen a Swiss shoemaker backed by Roger Federer going public at NYSE. And that, and that really, in many ways, points to the demand by consumers that you're talking about. Exactly right. And it was an, an exciting IPO. It got a very warm reception from public investors. It was also fun to have everybody on the trading floor wearing, wearing pairs of on sneakers. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure you, as, as, as many people will try to do that anyway on any given day. But look, give me a sense of, you know, how, whether you think 2021 will surpass uh, the, the numbers we saw for IPO listings last year. Uh, we, we're already there at the New York Stock Exchange. 2020 was oh. a record year. We've already beat that record in 2021. As we look forward, though, the pipeline for for Q4 remains strong. And as we look into the first half of next year, barring any market, uh, any kind of negative market activity, we're, ex we're expecting a very robust pipeline of companies to come to market in that first half of 2022 as well. And what could uh, hinder your plans then? Oh, there's a whole host of things. You know, there, there's always geopolitical and market, uh, you know, market moving events as you report on every single day, but everything else held constant. Uh, we expect a very strong pipeline of companies to come to market. What, I, what was interesting as I was reading, uh, reading up is that, you, you know, you're still seeing some, uh, many companies, I should say, going down the traditional IPO route, but you're also seeing companies taking other routes. Uh, is that an increase, you think? And why are we seeing that? It is an increase, and it's something we're really excited about and, and an area where the New York Stock Exchange has been driving a lot of innovation. If we were having this conversation a couple of years ago, there would have only been one path to the public markets, and that was the traditional IPO. Now we have more paths that are more tailored to meet a company's objectives when they come to market. So we have a strong pipeline of IPOs. We have direct listings which are coming to market. And today with Ginkgo Bioworks listing, this is a SPAC business combination and, again, the largest biotech listing of the year. And let me ask you, John, very briefly, because we're running out of time, in terms of Chinese companies uh, going public, are you seeing, because I know we, the, the shift somewhat of the U.S. regulatory environment has changed somewhat, are you seeing that impacted at all? 
Well, we had 13 companies from China list on the New York Stock Exchange in the first half of the year. Uh, based on some regulation that was passed on Capitol Hill and some of the actions by the SEC and some actions by the Chinese government as well, we've seen a pause right now in listings from China. But that said, uh, you know, our regulators are going to need to work together to identify a diplomatic solution, and we encourage them to do that as soon as possible. Thank you very much. John Tuttle, a very optimistic and bright picture that you are painting. It, you know, it's great after the years we've had, of course, with lockdown. Thank you very much, Vice Chairman and Chief Commercial Officer at the NYSE. And we'll bring you the market open after a very short break. Welcome back to First Move. The opening bell is sounding. You just heard it there on Wall Street, as John Tuttle just mentioned. Biotech firm Ginkgo Bioworks is ringing the opening bell to celebrate its new listing. Let's have a look at the markets. The last day of trade, U.S. stocks searching really for direction in early actions you can see there. And it's been a really choppy week of trading for the major averages. They remain close to records, but stocks are still in the red for the month. So you can see as we're tracking the Dow, the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq here today. Ten companies in the S&P 500 are down by 20 percent or more from recent heights. Now, the Fed's upcoming policy statement will be one of the big market events, as you can imagine, next week. All this coming as Fed Chair, Chair Jerome Powell orders a top-to-bottom ethics investigation at the central bank. Recent reports says senior Fed officials have been actively trading on financial markets. Now, Cuba has become the first country to vaccinate children as young as two. Using an independently developed vaccine, the government says is safe. It wants to be able to reopen schools following a spike in infections among children caused by the Delta variant. CNN's Patrick Hoffman has more for you from Havana. First comes the jab and then the tears. In this one clinic in Havana, the day we visited, over 230 children between the ages of two and five were vaccinated. Hospital administrators tell us. Several countries around the world have begun to vaccinate children, but Cuba is believed to be the first to vaccinate toddlers on a large scale. Even though COVID vaccinations aren't mandatory here, Laura tells me she didn't hesitate to bring her four-year-old daughter, Anisol, to get the shot. I'm relieved, she says, because a lot of people are still getting sick. And with the vaccine, we are more protected. Rather than rely on importing vaccines from abroad, Cuba has produced its own homegrown anti-COVID drugs. The island's government says studies show they are safe, even in children, and have begun sending data to the World Health Organization for its approval. With the Delta variant, cases in children are soaring in Cuba. And just since August, 10 children have died, according to government statistics. Something doctors here tell us they didn't expect would happen. It's more gratifying to vaccinate a child, she says. You put the vaccine and know they're going to be immunized and won't have serious complications or even die from COVID. The pandemic has hit Cuba hard with food and medicine shortages and in-person schooling canceled indefinitely. Cuban officials had said that they would reopen schools in early September, but with a surge of new cases and deaths, those plans are on hold. Now officials say that before they can safely reopen schools, they have to complete an island-wide vaccination campaign that includes children. What does I meet my cell and her daughter, Paola, right before the three-year-old gets her vaccine. I'm very happy, she says, more than when I got vaccinated. Vaccinating her is the biggest comfort yet. Cuba's vaccines require three doses. 
so there are more jabs to come for these kids. But parents say if it means that life can begin to return to normal for their children, then all the tears will have been worth it. Patrick Gottman, seen in Havana. We'll have much more news after a very short break. Do stay right here. This hour, regulators are debating vaccine booster shots for Americans. But that would harm Africa's vaccine drive, says the head of Africa's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He warns that every extra shot in rich nations means one less for the world's poorest. Joining me is the director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. John Nguyen He joins me now. Uh, director, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Look, what we're seeing today is Western countries deciding whether to stop providing booster shots to some of their populations. Where does this realistically leave Africa? How much does it hinder, do you think, the access to vaccines there? I think we all know that uh, Africa, as we speak, has very limited access to vaccines. As a continent, we have vaccinated only about 3.5% of our population. So if the, the Western world was to continue with that, it would further uh, uh, increase the gap between uh, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated in Africa. And we all know that unless we are all vaccinated, almost at speed and at scale, uh, the pandemic will persist, even if the, the, the Western countries uh, fully vaccinate their people. We see what has happened in, in Israel, where the population was vaccinated to a certain level, but then they were challenged with the Delta virus, and then uh, many people who were infected, who were vaccinated, became infected. So I think it makes just um, good uh, uh, common sense to know that we need to vaccinate many more people in the world than trying to increase the boosters. Yeah, that makes co complete sense. But you're not saying that boosters are not necessary, uh, is that what you? I mean, what is your assessment on the boosters, though? Oh no! The 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 concept of booster is uh, we have we have said this before that uh, the science behind or evidence uh, to suggest that we should be moving towards a booster is very thin so far. There are essentially a couple of key questions that must be addressed. When does this immunity or antibody levels against the various vaccines decrease to a certain level that it exposes? anyone who has been infected to progress to disease, to severe disease quickly. We don't have that data and we need to have that data. When is it exactly that we need to administer a booster? Is it at six months, seven months or eight months? We truly don't have that data. So I think there's still a lot that we don't know about uh, these vaccines, their behavior that will actually inform our decision to vaccinate, mm. uh, to administer a, a booster uh, doses. So do you think the West should be holding off then on administering these booster shots? And has the CDC or the WHO, have, do you know, have you made that appeal? Uh, we have made the appeal that uh, it, it is really for our collective security interest to try to expand the vaccination uh, to those who have not been vaccinated, at least uh, enable them to get the two shots so that they get the appropriate level of protection uh, than trying to increase the, the booster shots, especially against the background of the limited science and evidence that is out there that uh, we can use to truly inform ourselves that we need a, a, a third dose or a booster dose. You said you made that appeal, Doctor. Have you heard back? Have any of them agreed to it? 
I know we have made the appeal, WHO has made that appeal. I mean, Africa CDC has made the, the appeal, and we can only hope and believe that the appeal is being uh, listened to by mm. uh, those who have the, the control of the vaccines. Yeah, and on top, I mean, on top of the pressures that you've just outlined, that you're facing, that the continent is facing, with only 3.5% of people in the continent being vaccinated, I had read, and you can correct me, that COVAX has also slashed its forecast for doses available uh, this year. Why is that? What is hampering this? I think what is hampering COVAX's uh, ability to deliver vaccines is access to vaccines. I mean, many countries uh, have uh, the money, especially in Africa, to buy the vaccines. We have a mechanism, as you, you know, that we have established called the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team that has secured up to about 400 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, we want other producers to give their act to to enable African uh, countries to have access to the, the vaccine market. I think COVAX is also facing the same challenge. So without access to the vaccines, uh, there is no way money can work for you. Yeah. And where are you, doctor, on, on the efforts to produce vaccines in Africa? I'm very encouraged that many countries in Africa have now engaged in that process of uh, yeah. vaccine manufacturing. I mean, uh, about uh, we know that about five countries have now engaged in the process, including South Africa, Senegal, Rwanda, Egypt, Morocco, and Algeria. So we are very, very pleased with that effort. But that is not going to solve our problem now. That is an, an, almost an immediate term to a long-term uh, investment. So, but what we need now is uh, rapid access to vaccines. This pandemic is going out of control. We are not winning the war in Africa against this pandemic. 43 countries in Africa out of the 55 countries are actually going through a third wave. About five more countries are now into the fourth wave. So we are not we are ahead of the pandemic. We are lagging behind the pandemic. The virus is winning. Yeah, and the important thing to know to everyone is, you know, in order to beat this, we have to do it together. That's really the message that we need to keep repeating. Dr. John Kengason, thank you very much. Director of the Africa CDC, appreciate taking time to speak to us right here on the show. Now, the road to Expo is nearly upon us. The world's largest virtual and in-person event is a testbed for global events going forward. Anna Stewart looks behind the scenes at what various countries are doing. Do a little bit more this way and then compensate. Getting ready for the opening of one of the world's largest events looks something like this. A meticulous rehearsal for hundreds of dancers, performers, producers and choreographers. It is going to be an incredible show because it will combine not only live performances throughout El Wasl Plaza, but it will also include amazing projection and amazing music. In just two weeks, the eyes of the world will be here when the doors to Dubai's Expo 2020 open on October 1st. The global event's mission is to foster economic and cultural cooperation among top innovators, policymakers, and business leaders. Our overarching theme at Expo 2020 is connecting minds, creating the future. Traditionally, the Expo has been a place to showcase the latest technologies and innovations. With the COVID-19 pandemic, this edition will be a testbed for large events, a new hybrid physical presence, and a virtual experience. Some people may want to come, 
but may not be able to physically. They will get to visit the expo site virtually, visit pavilions virtually, even attend some of the events. We were one of the first countries in the world to release a virtual tour of our pavilion. Exactly like it's going to be upstairs. The director of the UK pavilion, Mehdi Tahir, says virtual experiences are at the centre of the country's offer. We've built out a platform to be able to take all our events online. He says accessing the pavilion from anywhere, wandering through its halls, engaging with innovations should be easy. All you need is access to a web browser. We've been really keen to make sure that those that can't physically get here are still engaged and immersed in the content that's coming out of here. And that's been the focus of Expo organisers, allowing virtual travellers to explore every corner of the 1,080-acre site, with tools to draw even the youngest audience. We also have an offering of Expo 2020 in the Minecraft world, which will allow the younger audiences to experience a special learning journey throughout the Minecraft platform. Tapping into the potential of virtual reality and digital tools, the opening ceremony will be the first of many virtual events that will accompany the physical experience of the next six months. Anna Stewart, CNN. After the break, a curtain raiser in New York's theatre land after an 80-month shutdown and a campaign to get Broadway seats filled. That's after a very short interval. Broadway is back. This was the scene in New York's theatre district earlier this week when the doors reopened to one of its most popular shows and masked patrons streamed in to watch Hamilton, as you can see there. And roaring applause was heard for the first time since the COVID shutdown. Listen to that, 18 months ago. The Lion King, Wicked, and Chicago are also back, and the TV star Oprah Winfrey is vo voicing a major advertising campaign. Here's a little bit for you. This is Broadway. <laughs> this is for you, Billy. Where time stops every time a show starts. Charlotte St. Martin is the CEO of the Broadway League, which is the trade association for the industry, and she joins us now. Charlotte, congratulations on the comeback. It is wonderful to see Broadway back. Uh, my producer in New York, team in New York, were so excited to see already New York come to life. What does this mean for everyone who works really in these productions? Well, certainly it means they're coming back to life. Uh, the past two weeks, when you walk around the theater district, people are not walking on the ground. They're walking about one feet foot off of the ground. It's a glorious time to have these incredibly talented onstage and backstage people back to work. How many, Charlotte, do you expect, how many shows do you expect to have back on stage by the end of the year? Give us a rough uh, idea of your plan. Right now, we have 38 shows returning by the end of December, which means we're almost full. We have two, show, two theaters in construction uh, and renovation, and we have 41. So that means only one theater will not be occupied by December 31st. And what have you had to do, just so our viewers get an understanding right around the world, what have you had to do? What measures have you had to put in place to make this work? A whole new set of protocols are uh, in place now, including those for the audience, 
like all people who attend a Broadway show, have to be vaccinated and show uh, proof with ID, uh, unless they're under 12, and then they have to show a negative test. Everyone has to wear a mask in the theater. And then backstage, same things. Uh, even the actors, when they're not on stage, will have to wear their masks, but they're tested twice weekly. There's a new security officer whose job it is to make sure that all of the safety protocols are in place. There's new HEPA filters that are good for cleaning the air. There are a number of new contactless services. Our goal has been from day one to ensure that all theater goers and cast and crew would be safe when they are in our theaters. And that's why it took us a long time to get open because we had to make sure that was the case. And of course, you know, Charlotte, this is not just a cultural rebound. It's also an economic one for so many of these theatres. Well, yes. I mean, Broadway contributes 97,000 jobs to the city of New York. And in our last full season, almost $15 billion in economic impact to the city. So in addition to being a great business, we give great joy and we make New York back what New York is. Broadway is symbolic with New York. And, and, and I don't mean to put a damper on the story at all, but of course we are seeing, you know, we're not out of the woods yet when it comes to COVID and we're seeing US Delta cases rising. How worried are you that this actually may hamper the plan for the rest of the year, Charlotte? Well, we have to keep very close watch on everything we're doing, not let down on our protocols. And uh, of course, we worry for the people who are impacted by COVID, but we are going to be stringent to make sure that we don't have to shut down. Well, we're wishing you all the best of luck. It's great news to see Broadway back. Charlotte St. Martin, the CEO of the Broadway League. Thanks very much, Charlotte. Now, Thank you. Looking, looking skyward and the world's first all-tourist space crew are spending what could be their last full day admiring the view in orbit. New images have been released of the Inspiration4 mission. Look at that. And despite orbiting 357 miles above the Earth, the four crew members might not get an official astronaut wings from the federal government. Kristen Fisher is at Cape Canaveral. She joins us now. And, and Kristen, that is pretty unfair. I mean, it's a huge achievement and they won't get their wings. How come? Well, it's essentially a technicality, and it's really part of this wider semantic debate uh, as we enter into this new era of space tourism. Basically, when you're filling out your official paperwork with the FAA, uh, SpaceX is given, uh, you know, only a few choices about what to call the crew. They can either be full-fledged crew members or spaceflight participants. And because the crew of Inspiration4 are not employers uh, or direct contractors of SpaceX directly involved, uh, with the launch or landing of this spacecraft, SpaceX had to say that they are space flight participants. And under the new eligibility requirements that the FAA put out after uh, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson flew to space, only crew members and not space flight participants are eligible for those government-issued FAA commercial astronaut wings. So it is the subject of a huge debate right now. I mean, right, you have some fellow NASA, former NASA astronauts, uh, astronaut Scott Kelly, who spent a year in space. He says, if you make it over the 50 mile threshold above Earth, you are 
an astronaut doesn't matter uh, what the federal government gets to say. And, you know, the, this does lead to the larger point of this is not a government enterprise, right? This is a private company sending the first all-civilian crew all the way up into orbit. So uh, the FAA says it is still deciding about what to do with this crew and all of these other space tourism crews. Uh, but we will have to wait and see after this crew splashes down. And that's going to be happening sometime either Saturday or Sunday. We think we still don't know exactly from SpaceX. It'll be happening somewhere off the coast of Florida. And the reason we're here right now in Port Canaveral, which is in Cape Canaveral, you see this ship right behind me? This is one of the booster return ships. It's called a drone ship. This one in particular is called a shortfall of gravitas. And so that's what catches the booster as it glides back down to Earth after propelling uh, the Crew Dragon spacecraft all the way into orbit. And just yesterday we saw one of the capsule recovery ships passing through this canal. And so this is where a lot of the activity is going to be potentially uh, over the next few days as this crew makes its way back down to Earth, Isa. And I can't wait to hear what the experience was like for them uh, as they spent their three days. Uh, it's fascinating. We saw those photos and they probably, Kirsten, they probably don't mind not getting the wings because the experience was all they ever dreamt of. Uh, Kirsten, thank you very much. Kirsten Fisher there for us at Cape Canaveral. Meanwhile, SpaceX founder Elon Musk is paying tribute to a British inventor who inspired a generation of children to become software engineers as well as coders. Sir Clive Sinclair, who started by selling pocket calculators and miniature TVs, sparked a home computer revolution. That's right, in the 1980s. His most popular machine was the ZX Spectrum. Some of his other products were commercially less successful, however, including Sinclair C5 electric tricycle. However, his legion of fans argue it was way ahead of his time, as some members of my team have said, told me as well. Sir Clive has died at the age of 81 after a long illness, and we thank him for his contribution. And that's it for us for the show and for this Friday. Have a wonderful weekend. Connect the World is next with Becky Anderson. Julia Chatterley is back with you next week. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.